0: and, and a, a message, a letter, has been sent to them. And so we're hopefully going to conclude uh, that little series uh, this morning. Let's just pray before we, before we begin. Heavenly Father, we uh, come to uh, the teaching of your word to us and we ask that by your Holy Spirit you will come and that you will lead and guide That even in the weakness of the communicator, that, Lord, by your Spirit, you will speak to our hearts, to our souls, and that you will tell us uh, those things that you want us to hear, and that we will be obedient to you uh, as you do so. The, The wonder of your word, Lord, is deep, and, Lord, we want to try to find more and learn more from you today. Be with us now and lead us into all truth we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. We've come a long way since we first encountered uh, John's apocalyptic letter uh, to the churches in Asia Minor and uh, we've met uh, Christ in particular engaging with his church uh, in written form Um, and the report or as Uh, Sinclair Ferguson calls it the x-ray report uh, that has been given by the great physician to these churches. And if you can imagine it like that, where Jesus has come and he's looked over his church and uh, he has seen and determined certain things and he wants to communicate these things to his people. And uh, in chapter 1 we find uh, John the Apostle um, as a, a, a Roman slave prisoner uh, on the island of Patmos um, and <clears throat> it's in the Lord's day and the, the Spirit of God um, communicates a, a vision uh, a message to him uh, but it's in a loud voice and the Lord uh, commands him to to write down uh, what he hears from the Lord and to deliver it to the seven churches in Asia Minor and as we uh, first engage with this right at the beginning uh, we see Jesus has given a number of different titles um, and we've identified these before but let me just recover them uh, for the purposes of what we're going to do today Um, he is the one who is who was and who is to come in in chapter 1 verse 4 and verse 8 He is the faithful witness in chapter uh, 1, verse 5. He's the firstborn from the dead uh, also in chapter 1, verse 5. And again, the ruler of the kings of the earth in the same verse. You know, we have a monarch uh, here in our uh, country in the UK. um, And she, with all the other monarchs and presidents and prime ministers, are also subjects. They're not not at the top of the tree. They're also subjects to the king of kings. And we need to remember that as we um, see what goes on in our world, that Jesus is described as the ruler of the kings of the earth. In verse 5 and 6, he's called the one who loves us and freed us from our sins. And again, we can see that as the the story of the cross uh, comes through the Gospels to us and obviously previously in Old Testament times it's foretold. We can see that he is the one who loves us and freed us from our sins. Freed us from our sins. Just think about that for a moment. Freed us from our sins. Not just reminded us about them, but freed us from our sins. By his blood, and has made us a kingdom of priests to serve our God and Father. He's called the Alpha and Omega in chapter 1, verse 8. He's called the Lord God in that same verse and the Almighty in that same verse. And then um, we see that he's called in Revelation chapter 1, verse 13, someone like a son of man. And uh, So, the Son of Man is clearly referring to the humanity of Christ, but it's a whole lot more than that, and sometimes we forget that it's more than that. Uh, although it is referring to his humanity, it's, it's uh, Jesus who is claiming to be the truly human one. And if you if you go back to the book of Daniel, you'll find reference to this, and it's worthwhile reading uh, the book of Daniel when you have time, but... Uh, Daniel 7 in particular Jesus is claiming there uh, or is identified there should I say as the son of man Um, and he's described there uh, the one who overcomes the beasts and there are various beasts described there and also uh, we're not going to venture into more of the book of Revelation but uh, I don't want it to be Um, too much of a a disappointment if you know the story ends well for us uh, later on but Jesus is the one who overcomes the beast in uh, the book of Revelation as well and so that son of man is whom uh, is being referred to here uh, in Revelation clearly and so it's more than just a humanity it's a powerful godly humanity that has been given to him in order that he might be able uh, to deal with these situations. And, of course, the Son of Man is Jesus' favored uh, title in the Gospels uh, themselves as well. Um, and, and also in Colossians, it tells us, uh, verse, uh, chapter 2, verse 9, that for in him the fullness of the deity dwells in bodily form. So it's not just a, a regular human being, but it's the fullness of God that dwells in this son of man the son of man Matthew 9 says that he has authority on earth to forgive sins that's who we're talking about and uh, also in John's gospel chapter 27 it says do not work for food that perishes but for food that endures to eternal life which the son of man will give you for on him God the Father has set his seal. And so there is something eternal that God wants to give us uh, through the Son of Man who is Christ. And so there are many uh, descriptions of Christ in the early part of the book of Revelation and uh, he's called the first and the last, the living one, the holy and true uh, one who holds the key of David. And if you remember last time we spoke about the key um, of the old testament which is a a huge uh, sickle shaped device that was able to be put through a door and unlatch it from the outside and lock it from the outside Um, and the only one who was uh, able to use that was the person who had authority uh, to use it the one who was given authority by the king and jesus here is uh, we're told has the keys he holds the key of david the authority uh, uh, also to use that key. And so he knows everything about us. We read that again this morning and we'll come to that in a moment. But he knows our deeds. He knows where we live in various uh, churches described in this uh, portion. He knows our afflictions and our poverty also. And so he knows everything, every detail about us, good or bad, righteous or or evil he knows it all Um, I was reminded of a a short story in uh, Vishal Mangalwari's book I don't know if you've read it the book that made your world Um, an excellent book and if you haven't read it I would recommend it to you uh, basically describing how uh, the the bible is the one book that has transformed Europe and, and various other parts of the world as well and he, he tells the story of uh, he was accompanying um, some friends of his in Holland and they were going to pick up some milk at a farm. And uh, as he uh, goes to uh, the farm, he discovers that at the end of the farm road there's a, a table with a, a churn of milk sitting on it and an honesty box. <laughs> and uh, Wiesel Mangalwady is looking at this situation never seen that before and so his Dutch friends go and they dip their can uh, into the milk and take out some milk for themselves and put some money in the box and he was blown away by this and he said my word they said in in India um, somebody would come along they would steal the milk and the money and be gone and that would never happen you would never see that happening there and he said well you see Europe has been transformed by the Bible. And the remnants of that remain uh, with us. It's been transformed by the teachings of Jesus Christ. And we discover that in the Bible, that no matter where we are or what we're doing, that the Lord is with us. That the Lord sees us. That he knows everything that we do. And so when someone comes along and sees the money and sees the milk, they automatically know that God is watching, not necessarily for evil intent, but to watch, to see that they pass the test, to see that they live honestly and truthfully before him. And you see, the Bible has come to transform us. And here we're told that Jesus knows everything about us. He knows our deeds. He knows where we live. He knows our afflictions and our poverty, all of the good and all of the bad, all of the evil that perhaps is about us. He knows all about that. Then it goes on uh, to give us a description of how the church is set up. The church is given angels or pastors to look after. The lampstands are described there and they are the churches themselves and so on as stars. There's all of these uh, there. And then we go on into chapter 2 very quickly. And we meet the seven churches, Ephesus, who lost their their first love and were told to repent and go back to do what they did at first. Uh, There's a, a big drive in our modern church to go forward all the time. We must be going forward. We must be cutting new ground. But Jesus is saying, well, hold on a minute. If you go the wrong direction, you need to go back. The Old Testament talks about going back to where the axe head fell off and find it and bring it up. And so sometimes we need to go back and repent of of the the route that we've gone. That's why we hear a voice behind us saying, this is the way, walk ye in it. Because we've gone the wrong direction. Jesus should be in front of us, leading us. And we see Smyrna about to be tested and persecuted. um, And they're called to stand firm in that situation. And we think about all of the churches currently in, in perhaps in Myanmar, perhaps in Ethiopia, perhaps in other parts of the world, in, in um, various parts of Africa, Central and, and Western Africa, challenged every day, but they're being called to stand firm and that they are to be given the promise of the victor's crown. In Pergamum, where Satan has his throne, we're told, there are those churches who follow the false teachings of Balaam, And again, uh, required to change. Thyatira, they tolerate this woman Jezebel who leads people into sexual immorality. And the world tells us that we need to tolerate that kind of thing. But Jesus says, no, we don't tolerate that kind of thing in the church. You know, tolerance is the most horrible thing to just tolerate people. It's a dreadful, dreadful philosophy. And so, in chapter 3, we find the church in Sardis. It tells us there that they had a reputation of being alive, but you are dead. The people of the world, the people around them said they were alive, a lively church. But Jesus comes along and speaks a different message to them and says, you're dead. And I'm always reminded of of the situation in in the book of Judges where Gideon uh, encounters the angel of the Lord. And, uh, and the assessment that Gideon has of himself is again different to God's assessment and uh, he, he, he says, look, I'm the weakest in the tribe of Manasseh I'm, don't, don't come to me, I'm, I'm useless and God says to him, no, you're a mighty warrior and the, the difference is so important that God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble such as his servant Gideon in that occasion in Philadelphia, the Lord, loved by the Lord, they were given an open door for ministry. And then we come to the church in Laodicea. And uh, Laodicea, um, it was originally called Diospolis, which is uh, the city of Zeus, um, a false god, um, and is in the, the modern city of Denizili. And in Turkey, it had become quite rich uh, over the years uh, by the kind of trade that it was doing. It became a very rich city and that 's where we 're going to look at today uh, this This uh, city would, would send the Jews in the city would send lots and lots of gold up to up to Jerusalem each year for the temple and uh, Jesus' assessment of this church is that there's not really anything good about it at all. It is a church of, of non-believers, really. Um, occasionally, as, as I go out to speak, uh, in my, when I'm wearing my Mission International hat, I go out to speak in various churches, and uh, you know, um, reporting on what's happening with Mission International and, and so on. And uh, quite often, not always to me, it's, I, I keep getting on to Ian Craig because it's him that gets all the gifts, chocolates and all that kind of thing, when he goes out. But they'll give sometimes a gift to say thank you for coming and, uh, and they'll give us um, a box of chocolates or something. Probably they'll look at me and think probably a Caesar salad would probably do you better. Than, and it doesn't really keep so well, unfortunately. Um, but the, the gifts are most welcome. But on one occasion we went to a church and at the end of the service uh, they came up and gave us a a wrapped gift and uh, we went outside and opened it and it was a copy of The God Delusion by Richard Dawkins now I don't know quite what they were trying to say uh, by that whether they thought well that might help you you bunch or uh, whether they were completely unaware uh, and maybe thought well it's got God in the title that'll probably do Um, I have no idea but it would come across to me as being someone who has no idea of what church is all about. Someone who has lost the place, lost the way completely. And uh, so the thought perhaps doesn't count on all occasions uh, when you're given a gift. But this was, uh, this was a false church. It was an unconverted church. It was one who had a warped view of Jesus Christ. It was, as I said, in a rich area, very rich church. The Jews sent gold, probably about nine kilograms of gold it's uh, uh, valued that they would send every year uh, to the temple in Jerusalem. So they weren't cheapskates in that respect. Nine kilograms, I mean, that's probably approaching, uh, somewhere approaching half a million pounds worth of gold in today's prices. Um, and so they were wealthy. They were, they were renowned for this um, medicine that they, they produced um, for people's eyes. Now, I don't know if you've ever been in a dusty climate um, and you find the wind blowing the sand and dust in your eyes and it can be very irritating and difficult to remove. Well, Laodicea had uh, this eye salve that they produced Um, and it, again, brought a lot of wealth to the city. And so it was a great city of finance and banking. Uh, They they were so wealthy that when they had an earthquake, they refused any help from the Roman government. They they rebuilt the city themselves. They had so much money. And uh, the reference to to white raiment, white clothes, uh, may refer to the cloth trade that they had Um, later on and the juxtaposition of that because they they had black wooled sheep uh, produced in the area I don't know if you've ever seen uh, sheep, don't get many in the UK that have black wool because black wool is virtually useless and valueless in our current situation Um, (laughs) I don't want to go into a lot of detail about that but uh, can you imagine trying to produce a a beautiful white carpet for your lounge uh, or whatever and all of a sudden there's a great lump of black wool appears in the middle of it Uh, the people who who deal in wool hate black wool because it seems to infect everything and uh, so they they don't like it at all and so um, these people they produce a lot of black wool Um, and so there is a reference interestingly enough to white raiment or white clothes later on that we'll look at And so after there was an earthquake uh, in Laodicea about AD 64 and uh, the the city was rebuilt and there were three theatres and a circus that could hold about 30,000 people. So it was a massive uh, building put up after that. And so the Apostle Paul refers to to Laodicea in his uh, writings as well. Uh, In Colossians chapter 2 Um, he says this, I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea. He's talking to the Colossian church, writing to them. But I was really struck by these words from the Apostle Paul. Colossians 2, 2, chapter uh, chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those in Laodicea. No doubt the Apostle Paul was aware of the the, the challenges and the issues that surrounded uh, the church in Laodicea. Colossae was probably about 15 kilometers or so from uh, from Laodicea. And so the, the, the issues would be probably known to the churches in the area. So he says that he's contending for them. And I was really struck by that, that there is a a heart in this man, the Apostle Paul, to to contend in prayer for those even uh, in the situation that, that Laodicea found itself, that they might turn around. It says, and for all who have met me personally, my goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom we have all hidden all treasure and wisdom and knowledge. I tell you, he says, this is the one, sorry, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. And that, of course, is probably one of the big issues that we find there. And he also goes on in Colossians uh, chapter 4 verse 13 talking about Epaphras who is one of you and the servant of Jesus Christ sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you that you may stand firm in the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those in Laodicea and Hierapolis. Here are these guys. They understand what prayer is all about that we need to contend in prayer not just a passing mention perhaps and when we consider our brothers and sisters elsewhere perhaps we need to contend more uh, for them that they may hear the word of God that they may respond faithfully to the word of God so here we are uh, in Revelation chapter 3 verses 14 to the end To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. The Amen indicates uh, that he is God's perfect and final revelation. Jesus is God's perfect and final revelation. So that's why that word is used there. And the faithful and true witness, He is described as the one who has gone all the way without hesitation. He's gone all the way to the cross for us and that he is the ruler of God's creation and that he is, uh, Colossians tells us, that he is the firstborn of all creation. Everything was created by him, everything that we can see, every throne and dominion and ruler authority are created through him and for him. And so we see him described, Jesus described in that way at the beginning of this portion. And then verse 15, he says, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. Now again, that would mean something to these people because the the water system uh, in the area was very poor. And uh, the water would become warm and tepid uh, because of the heat of the sun. Uh, it was too near the surface. And so the water in the area became uh, warm. Um, and the people just really got uh, struggled to drink it. And I don't know um, what you're like, but I know what it's like uh, traveling in hot countries. You're carrying a bottle of water. And before you know it, this bottle of water was really right out the fridge, freezing cold. And within 10 minutes it's got to the stage where you really don't want to drink it even though you're thirsty and here he is he's talking to these people he says i know your deeds i know that you're neither hot nor cold i wish you were either one or the other i would i wish you were either hot like tea or i wish you were cold like a bottle of water out the fridge but this this middle of the road stuff is horrible In verse 16, he says, So because you are lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. The word really means to vomit you out of my my mouth, which is a real reaction uh, to the situation. You can imagine Jesus' reaction to his church. These are the people who are intended to worship him, these are the people who are intended to declare the good news of Jesus around the place, these are the people who are meant to represent him uh, on the earth. And he's speaking to them in this way. How horrible it must have been in his belly for, for the church to be seen in this way, to, to feel like vomiting them out of his mouth. You make me sick, he says. And so the, that this church had lost everything, lost its, its heavenly sweetness, the church is intended to bring sweet praise uh, to Christ. And he, Jesus, just thought it was abhorrent, this loss of flavour, and he wasn't about to, to take it. Then in verse 17 it says, You say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and do not need a thing. It's interesting that that was their interpretation of the situation. That was the church's interpretation, that wealth and riches had been acquired and they now no longer need anything. And I suppose that's quite representative of the Western world uh, where we live uh, in the the States and and across Europe, that we've become rich over the years. We've acquired wealth. We have an excellent uh, health service, and these are all good things. But he's saying here, we now think that we don't need anything. We don't need God. We don't need Jesus. He says, you say that, but you don't realize. This is how I see it. You don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. What an assessment of a church. And we've got to consider to ourselves, is this an assessment of St. Peter's? Is this an assessment of the church church? In Scotland and across the United Kingdom, if Jesus was to come and turn up in our building in person today, what would he say to us? What would he say to us? Well, by his Spirit, maybe he's calling us. Maybe he's saying that we need to remember that we don't do anything without him, that we can't achieve anything without him, that we do need him. We need him in every way he says in verse 18 I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire now I don't know if you've ever seen metal being melted uh, in a fire gold requires uh, heat and the crucible in order to refine it and of course the um, impurities are taken from the surface so that that gold can be Uh, made pure and so he he wants us he wants his church to be like gold reflecting him refined in the fire so that you can become rich and buy from me white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and I've entered these words and buy from me salve put on your eyes so that you can see You'll notice he's using words that these people know all about. They are familiar with the making of gold. They are familiar with the making of eye salve. They are familiar with the making of clothing. He's using uh, instructions. He's using words. He's using examples that they know all about. And they're they're involved in it. And uh, they have abandoned their walk with God. And he says to me, Buy from me gold, refined in the fire, so that you can become rich. Not riches in the sense of this world, but rich in Christ. Rich in faith, the uh, Corinthians puts it. Rich in faith. Isaiah 59 talks about buying without money. Not worldly riches for worldly purposes. It's not wrong to be rich per se. But we must remember why we have become rich. Why we have been made rich. So that we can be of use to God in certain areas of our lives. And he says, store up for yourself riches in heaven. So it's not all about physical riches. Store up for yourself riches in heaven. Well, how on earth do you do that? How do you do that? We're not in heaven yet. How can we store up riches in heaven? Well, I don't know really. But I think this is important. I think it's important that we serve and bank and serve and bank. For every work of ministry in which we're involved, every service that we make to the Lord, then there is, there is a, an account being made for us in heaven. I remember singing it when I was a kid store your treasure in the bank of heaven, where no rust, uh, where where no thief can steal it away, and so on. And someone described it like this once each person helped by the Lord in some way as we minister here on earth carries with them a purse of treasure. So, in actual fact, what we're doing is we're putting our, 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 our wealth into someone else, we're putting our heavenly store into someone else. And when that person reaches the glory, then the account is is added to um, as they go. And so maybe some will be there before us and maybe some will come behind us and maybe we'll all go together one day. But our heavenly bank account will be uh, put into the plus, put into the black um, as we do so. He talks here about white clothing and dazzling clothes. That white doesn't just mean the regular whiteness you get with uh, your washing powder uh, a bluey whiteness I understand um, but it's dazzling white that it's talking about here that's referring to dazzling white clothes to cover your shameful nakedness we've been given a, 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 a cloak to wear we've been given a garment to wear which is the right, righteousness of Christ and he's, he's encouraging these people to, to wear it, to put it on, um, and to cover up their nakedness. And as I said, it's not that black wool from the area, but this incredible brightness that comes through wearing what Christ uh, puts upon us and living in his ways. And so, also, not only white clothes, but a salve for your eyes something that will wipe away the the world's dust, the world's soot, as it were, that gets upon us. Salve to your eyes so that we can see more clearly, so that we can see what God is saying to us. How do we deal with that? How do we receive that? Well, I believe it's through the word of God, the anointed word of God that opens our eyes, opens our eyes to the truth. The Bible tells us that the spirit of truth, Jesus explains that to his disciples, that the spirit of truth will lead you into all truth. And so he, the Holy Spirit, comes and washes our eyes, makes us clean. The the, the scripture cleans our being washing of water by the word of God and so he brings light into our darkness 2 Corinthians 4 6 says this for God who said light shall shine out of darkness is the one who has also shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ and so we will be washed clean uh, through his word Verse 19 goes on to say, Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline, so be earnest and repent. Again, repentance is required. Now, earnestness is talking about showing a kind of conviction uh, with regard to uh, what we've been called to do. It's it's a serious-mindedness, if you like, uh, that earnestness that we've been called to But repentance is something that we all know about. We've all heard about. Repentance means turning around. It means one day we were doing our thing, our way, but now we've been called to repent, to go God's way, to do His, uh, to do His will and His purpose. And that's what He's speaking to uh, these people here. They've decided to wander. They've decided to go their own way. They've decided that they don't need uh, God anymore. And he said, no, you need to repent. You need to turn around and go God's way. In verse 20, he says, I'm standing at the door and knocking. I'm knocking. If anyone hears my voice... Now, can you imagine Jesus saying that? If anyone hears my voice, they have turned so deaf that, that they, they are completely deaf to the voice of Jesus speaking. If anyone hears my voice, not when anyone hears my voice, but if anyone hears my voice, what a challenge. Are we prepared to hear the voice of God speaking to us? I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'm going to come in and eat with that person and they with me. Isn't that fantastic that he will come in? Forgiveness is with him as we open the door to him, turn around, repent and open the door, he will come in and he will eat with us. He will will communicate with us. He will live with us uh, in our lives. There's that persistent knocking that he does. Maybe, Maybe it's the persistent prayers, the contending that was done by the Apostle Paul and Epaphras that we can hear. Maybe the Apostle John also praying for God's people as he is languishing in a prison uh, so far away. And predominantly, obviously, the the, the intercession of Christ. Knocking, 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 knocking. It's kind of like uh, when when I'm traveling in Africa in particular, um, Africans tend to eat a very, very healthy meal just before they go to bed probably so it makes them sleep um, soundly and so so you'll be sitting there uh, late in the evening and then this mountain appears um, and having faith to move mountains is quite important when you try to eat something in Africa because they give you a massive amount to eat before you go to bed at night and maybe this was the evening meal the final plea that Jesus is making the compassion of Christ, saying, look, will you listen to me? Will you open the door? Will you, are you prepared to hear what I have to say before it's too late? We're now approaching night time when nothing can happen. Can you still hear me? Laodicea, will you listen to what I have to say? Verse 21, it says, "The one To the one who is victorious, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I was victorious and sat down with my Father on his throne. You see, what an opportunity we've been given. If we walk with God, if we fulfill his purposes, as, as we walk with him, turn around and repent of what we've been involved in and walk with Jesus Christ, we're going to be given ...a victorious place. Vic- the victorious ones... ...only the victorious ones... ...will be exalted with Christ. He who has a near to hear... ...let him hear... ...what the Spirit is saying to the churches. And very briefly... ...just uh, as I conclude... ...McShane notes this portion... ...in his writings... ...and he says Jesus makes two types of promises... Uh, ...in these few verses. He makes threatening promises... And he makes comforting promises. uh, Suggesting that some may hope that Christ will not hold good to his promise. Some people who have been involved in all sorts of stuff will think, well, maybe we just hope that Jesus forgets all about that and and looks over it. But he's not going to. In Revelation, McShane says, in Revelation, Jesus is described as the Amen. He is the true witness. He is the conclusion of God's uh, glory will he remove that amen and call himself a liar no he is a destroyer as well as a savior he shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels and flaming fire taking vengeance on them that do not know Christ and if you want to read more about that look in 2 Thessalonians chapter 1 and you'll see that when he is revealed with his powerful angels. Christ is the faithful and true witness. He gives true testimony with regard to our condition before him and his father. And he notes the woman at the well. The woman at the well testified of the Lord in John chapter 4. Come see a man that told me everything I ever did he knows everything he knows every detail of our lives well just looking back at the, the, the city of Laodicea a few da- days a few years sorry, later after the revelation was written by John probably written about AD 96 or thereby just a few years after that the city was again destroyed by another earthquake and it never recovered Did the church hear what Jesus had to say? What's going to be an earthquake that will wake us up? What's going to be an earthquake that will speak to our hearts and tell us to change? Maybe the pandemic, maybe the floods and storms and fires, maybe the wars and rumours of wars. Or today maybe he's speaking to us in a still small voice that says, come, And follow me. If you hear him knocking. If you hear him knocking. Maybe somebody's contending for you in prayer. Wherever you are. Hear his voice. Open the door. And let Jesus in. Amen. Let's pray. Again, Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the many challenges that it brings. We pray, O God, that by your spirit you will will inspire and turn and change our lives in order that we might be those who who pray, those who serve, those who preach the gospel to those around us, those who respond to you and your call upon our lives.